podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to another World Cup podcast here on Anfield Index. Uh, the last 16 knockout ties are well underway and uh, after a weekend that saw us wave goodbye to Messi, Ronaldo and a final farewell to the majestic Andres Iniesta, um, the world's most expensive footballer ensured Brazil overcame a game but profligate Mexico side. Uh, on the pod today to help me talk about sort of the, um, the World Cup as a whole but then maybe focus on some of these knockout ties and what's coming ahead for us um, is poet, journalist and musician Musa Okwanga. Welcome, Musa. Thank you for having me. Yeah, delighted to speak to you after a while, Musa. Um, so much to talk about, and uh, it's probably a little bit little time. But um, just to start things off, I mean, what have you made of this World Cup so far as a whole? Then, I mean, plenty of, sort of I've seen claims that it's the best or the most consistently enjoyable that they've experienced in terms of maybe the style of football, the fact that it took so long for there to be the first nil-nil draw, perhaps. But um, what have you made of it yourself? I would say the overarching headline for me has been fortune favours the brave. So we've seen teams going out who've been fundamentally quite complacent in their approach. Spain in particular, uh, Germany as well. You know, the, so, the so-called traditional favourites have gone out. And what I love is that you've seen some of the smaller teams, so to speak, be tactically very smart, very astute. And they've absolutely punished those bigger teams for their shortcomings. So I think that's really... It's great, almost a democratisation of football, I think. So a levelling of the playing field. No, I can certainly see that for sure. I think there's, I mean, given the sort of football that we see on a regular basis here in Europe, it's just a case of either not seeing enough of these footballers um, right. and, and, and then being shocked when you notice that, for example, Mexico, um, the thing that struck me the most about them, other than that perhaps they reminded me the most out of any side I've seen of, of Klopp's Liverpool in terms of their approach, was the right. fact that they passed the ball so well. I was in, I, I was amazed, especially in, in the way in which they took apart Germany. I'm not sure what you made of Mexico, obviously, going out today. I just think, actually, the one crucial area where they depart from Klopp's Liverpool is they're not ruthless on the counter. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, you look at the Klopp-Liverpool team, which is just wonderful. Any one of those three forwards can lead and finish a counter-attack. And the problem is, unfortunately, if you look at Mexico team, You've got Lozano who can start the counter, even Hernandez to an extent, but they can't all finish the counter, and that's where they came up short. And that's really the crucial difference between these sides. You look at someone like Croatia, for example, who are just absolutely ruthless, even when below their best. And I think that's the defining characteristic of the teams that have gone through so far. There's the element of ruthlessness. You know, Croatia and Brazil have both shown substantial flaws in their approach, so have France. But when it comes down to it, those three teams in particular are the killers. And they're the ones, and, and Uruguay as well, and they're the ones I expect to see, you know, at the business end of the tournament in the next few days. Yeah, it's interesting. I think they all have different strengths, but I think, as you mentioned, uh, um, when the tournament started off, uh, and I saw that fantastic game, uh, Spain versus Portugal, I was wondering whether it would be the World Cup of the number 10 or, or the creative midfielder in terms of those being the, the players who, as you mentioned, that can play that final pass, can, right. uh, can really punish you in those situations. But then, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it later on, but that Spain game versus Russia, I mean, the, Spain could not have been more well stacked with those sorts of players, and yet they were, they were incapable of linking up with players who perhaps weren't making the runs for them. But um, Can I say this, though? Isco is basically, oh. 
Isco is like the young Jedi who hasn't finished his training. <laughs> and you could see that against Russia. You know, when, when Iniesta came on, if you see the amount of passes that Iniesta hammers into the final third and demands movement, whereas Isco, you know, he nibbles at the ball, he rolls under his studs, he looks up, and then he plays it square. And, you know, it's either he doesn't look for the killer pass or the killer dribble, which is very interesting. When, when Isco, you know, there, there are certain um, statements of football. I think one of them is the run creates the pass. Uh, the pass creates, sorry, the pass creates the run. And if you look at what Iniesta did and contrast with Isco, you know, it's not just ticky-tacky, it's penetrative passing and running. And unfortunately, when it came to be ruthless, Spain didn't have that extra gear. Yeah, for sure. I think it was frustrating and, and definitely coming to talk about maybe sort of the the way in which they've been received following that defeat and, uh, you know, of course, plenty, right. of, plenty of very quick um, uh, pundits sort of looking to decry ticky-tacky and it, it, even though, for example, it's, it's not Tiki Taka, actually. Not, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a directness. You know, the whole point of Tiki Taka is you create, you stretch the opposition, you hit the killer pass. And with all respect to Isco, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how accustomed he is to running an attack the way he had to run it for Spain. You know, there was a lot of talk about how Spain is Isco's team. I'm not sure he's necessarily ready for that responsibility. To be honest, I'm not sure most midfielders are ready for that responsibility in the current setup. No, it's definitely one that does weigh heavy on you, I think, especially right, when, you, right. when you are mentioning the likes of Andres Iniesta, who's, yeah, um, comes on, and, and as you mentioned, he's, his, his primary focus is how can I be as, you know, as, as penetrative as possible. Um, right. Just to, going back to the tournament as, uh, as a whole, then, I mean, um, right. what were your expectations prior to this tournament, then? Because... Uh, Obviously, in sort of the offsides columns that we may come on to talk about towards the end, um, you outlined some of the fact that, that of course, um, it's not just about football, these World Cups, it's about everything else as well. And, then, and there's so yes. many fa- factors off the pitch that do, do have to be considered. Um, what were your expectations prior to the tournament then? And I guess, how, how has it lived up to expectation based on, on the games you've seen so far? I think, in, you know, in relation to off the field, funnily enough, you know, in relation to the activists using the World Cup as a form of a protest, that hasn't been a thing we've seen, and that's a conscious choice by, for example, LGBT activists. They've made the calculation that fundamentally it's not wise in a state with as many authoritarian tendencies as Russia to protest. It's just not good for the activists on the ground. I think that's a very sensible choice. They wait until after the tournament. So actually you've seen not much agitation on the streets. Um, on the pitch, it's been extraordinary because I expected a far stronger showing from Germany, much less complacency. I did expect Spain to be a little stronger than they were. My favourites, France, from the start of the tournament, are still going strong. England have put on a really nice showing, you know, against limited opposition. Belgium have stepped up in a really nice fashion. And we've also seen the kind of, you know, the, the lesser, the lesser fancy teams put on really strong showings, you know, Peru, Denmark, Australia as well, to be fair to Australia and France's group. What a fantastic primer that World Cup group was for them. So, what I love about this World Cup is almost every single nation has really brought it, has brought the fight. I would say the only nation that's disappointed substantially has been Egypt, to be honest. Everyone else has shown, even Saudi Arabia has shown some measure of substantial fight over the course of the three games. Absolutely. I think I'll always think of Morocco and just think about how unfortunate they must feel to have gone home despite having had three games where perhaps there wasn't the quality in the final third, but every Can I be was... harsh? Can I be harsh towards Morocco? Okay, go on. The same way I'm going to be harsh towards Senegal. This is the World Cup. You've got to be ruthless. Mm. And, you know, it's so easy to be romantic about, oh, poor Morocco, they deserve better. But here's the thing. You've got to be brutal. 
you know, I'm a fan of Cameroon in 1990 and they went 2-1 up with 24 minutes to go. But they had the opportunity to like stamp on the throat and they didn't do it. And that's why I love Uruguay because Uruguay, you know, small country, small side, humble side, but they still find a way to get it done. And, you know, much as I love Morocco, I think this needs to be a really important lesson. They've got to take the pain of this elimination. And remember, we never will feel this way again. That's their lesson. They have to take that away from this tournament. Yeah, well, in terms of a side that's usually, I mean, especially ruthless um, in the way in which they played football beforehand on the international stage, Germany is, of course, and that's got, especially sort of personal attachment to yourself. Um, mm. uh, exiting the, tour, uh, the tournament in ignominy, obviously, and um, bottom of the group, uh, I thought it was a fairly comfortable 2 0 win for South Korea in the end, to be honest. I mean, they. They had multiple opportunities to finally finish Germany off, and they did, of course. Absolutely, so, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I thought the same way when, when I watched that Mexico game as well. Because you know, we, we talked about them at, at the start of the pod, you know, perhaps not being ruthless enough, but the, the way in which they were carving open this Germany side was something that we haven't absolutely. seen before. Um, how has that result been received? I, I know you did talk about it a little bit in, in, in a recent climb, but how has that result been received in the country? Um, so much soul searching, so much soul yeah. searching because, you know, so much money was invested at youth development level. There's a sense of arrogance. You know, the Germany slogan was, I think, best, uh, best never rest, which is extraordinary leap from the last tournament where it was all about, you know, the collective, the team, humble, we worked together. And this was more like a, a sense that this German team could turn up and turn it on when it mattered. And, and, and as someone told me when I was, you know, talking to people in the street after the game, they said, after the defeat at South Korea, they said, the thing is, when you're the world champions, you are hunted. And, you know, as, as, as Neil said, the guy I spoke to, he said, look, every time you go into a challenge, you're the target on your back. You've got the target on your back. And I don't think Germany were ready for the whirlwind they received. They weren't ready for it. And you look at a player like Gundogan. Gundogan was absolutely essential in terms of, linking midfield, defensive midfield and attack, and was, you know, barely off the bench, was nowhere to be seen. Actually, Ozil didn't have the worst World Cup. Ozil had a pretty decent World Cup, actually, but the problem Ozil had, fundamentally, is that the movement around him was just appalling. Timo Werner, who was a very good player at Bundesliga level, just did not get into position. Um, often enough, there's a great analysis by Adam Shearer um, you can find on YouTube where he sort of dissects what Werner did wrong in terms of movement. Germany just lacked urgency off the ball all over the pitch, and that's what did for them in the end. And in terms of Mr. Faithful, I mean, Thomas Muller has been that man so many times. Right. Obviously, we saw Tony Cruz come up with that one magical moment for Germany to right. rescue them. But Thomas Muller um, is another one who just seems to, to have arrived in the box whenever they've needed him to in the past years. But um, this season, both in the Bundesliga and, and, and also at international level, he, he does seem weirdly out of sorts. What's the sort of feeling around Thomas Muller? Muller's a fine player, but again, Muller's like an Ozil type player. He's not going to beat them up to dribble necessarily, even less so than Ozil. If you look at the first 15 minutes against Mexico, when he combines with Kimmich very well on the right, he starts the game very well. He's surrounded by dynamic movement, and then it begins to fall away. And unfortunately, you know, Muller is a system player. If the system isn't working, Muller's not. And I wouldn't blame him directly for the result, but I think that he's actually somebody who, as a senior member of the squad, need to take more responsibility for the kind of runs that people around him are making. You know, if you're a leading player in a team like that, you have to encourage your players to be more dynamic. And it's not just about Leroy Sané not going, because I'm not sure that Sané, you know, I think Sané dodged a bullet, actually. I'm not sure that Sané would have been the remedy to this. I think there was a fundamental failure of attitude 
in this team. I don't mean necessarily they didn't want to win. I think they weren't prepared for what it would take to win. And this, let's not forget, winning two World Cups back to back, it's no, <laughs> it's no easy feat. No, certainly not. I think perhaps it is just a case of that motivation perhaps not being there. Even if, right. even if the players themselves didn't recognise it, I think, and that's and that's what it was. Yeah, was, there was nobody. I don't think it was a question of the players going, "Oh wow, look at us, we're so amazing." No. It's not a conscious thing. It's more being half a step too slow. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I think we've seen that. Um, it's sort of a strange thing to see because I thought at the end of that game, I think plenty of people, perhaps those who've been watching Germany for a long time, hoping for them to to slip up on these occasions, and of course they haven't done in the past. I mean, the way in which the German players reacted. Um, obviously despondency and things like that, but it, it did seem to be more a state of bewilderment more than anything else, to be honest, because it was ra- rather than sort of an outpouring of emotion that we've seen from some of these teams who fought incredibly hard and they've not got what they what they ultimately deserve from a group or on these knockout stage games. Germany just seemed to have a bunch of you know, really fantastically world-class you know, players standing there looking around at each other wondering how that happened rather than I think that at a deeper level, there was a recognition. If you look at the German reaction to yeah. the knockout, there was a deep and sober reflection and an understanding that actually, fundamentally, this was on the cards. It's a bit like when you break up with someone. And, you know, at the time, it seems like a shock, but you look back over the previous few months, yeah. and actually, you know what I mean? Actually, there's a kind of momentum that was leading in that direction. I don't know if you're a big fan of the TV series The Wire, but there's a great scene um, where one of the drug dealers says, look, you have to always get there early, you know, because one day you might be a little slow or a bit a little late and you get caught out. And he said it best, Avon Barksdale, he said, how are you never going to be late? How are you always going to be on time? And I think Germany, you know, fundamentally the pressure of having to be on time and having to be early caught up with them. And the urgency they had in 2014, it wasn't there. And that was what did for them. Yeah, we've got plenty of wire fans on FL Index. So I think that that <laughs> reference will definitely be uh, one that's been appreciated, as as well as all the sort of Game of Thrones references that I've seen you being put, being putting out throughout this World Cup. Yes. Because if you're talking yeah. about ruthlessness, <laughs> that's, yes, a, that's a show for sure. You yeah, know, no, I'm a big fan of the old Game of Thrones references. Um, I was actually comparing Spain to Stannis Baratheon recently because I think if you look at Spain and Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, they both had this sense of entitlement to the throne if that makes sense. You know, oh, well, I'll turn up and I'll claim it. It's my birthright. And I think Spain, unfortunately, against Russia, showed a real sign of that, a 1-0 up. Oh, we're Spain, we're going to win. And this is a, in a problem that England have, to be honest. This is a real problem England have. You know, they're playing Colombia, they're just out at the group stages, and already, oh, we've got a path to the final. Look, if this World Cup has proven anything, it is that teams who have an eye on anything beyond the round they are in will come a cropper. This is the absolute rule of the World Cup. No, absolutely. I think you just, it's a sort of very tired cliche, obviously, that in one game at a time, it's something that you hear sort of players trot out, whether they truly believe it or not, um, plenty of times, but it does seem to be that way in terms of the focus, um, just, you know, exert every ounce of energy you have, um, in each game, and then focus on, uh, focus on what's left. Um, exactly. The past weekend, then, obviously, start the knockout phase, and we were treated to sort of different types of games with those penalty shootouts on Sunday. Um, you know, more sort of uh, tense encounters that you know, had that big payoff towards the end. Um, it also saw the departure of a number of the game's greats, of course. Um, one of those being Messi, of course, and yes. um, uh, unable to answer that lingering question, then I guess regarding his greatness, plenty of people are still going to 
um, you know, push that towards him, I guess, in terms of you know, him, him not achieving it at, at, at the very, very highest level internationally with with Argentina. And perhaps it is a little bit fitting. Uh, I thought that arguably the most memorable moments associated with Argentina's campaign um, this World Cup have come from a 57-year-old icon in the stands. And yes, <laughs> Whatever he or he hasn't been doing, <laughs> I don't. Right, right. I don't say too I much. I just think, you know, to be honest, I think that Messi's legacy is a bit like Andre 3000's. So you know how right now you look at Outkast, right? <laughs> yeah. you, look at, you look at hip hop, and everyone goes, "Oh, who's the best rapper of all time?" And the people say Jay Z, Eminem, whatever, Tupac. Twenty years from now, when you listen to Tupac and listen to Andre 3000, and you filter out the kind of stuff that Tupac talks about and some of the misogyny and whatever and all the homophobia, if you filter out the universal messaging. You're going to see Andrew Three Thousand's ranking and the greatest rappers of all time rising higher and higher and higher towards Tupac's level, right? Because people are going to assess his career much more fairly in the course of time. Because right now, everyone's like, Andrew Three Thousand, he's a bit out there, never released a solo album, blah, blah, blah. Is he really that good? And I think the same with Messi as well. You know, all these comments that are very current, they're very social media driven. Is he better than Ronaldo? Like, has he ever won a World Cup? Has he ever run a team by himself? All these questions are going to fall away, I think, in time. And Messi, over the next 20, 30 years, and everyone realizes actually that the World Cup is more of a meritocracy, that it's actually more of a crapshoot, depending on who's fit at the time, how many you know, players in your generation are firing on all cylinders at the same time. 20 years from now, if Messi is you know, still around and if you can wait that long, he will be anointed as the greatest, I think, of all time, in the fullness of time. And to be honest, actually, you know, Maradona, as amazing as Maradona is, he's actually still lucky to be in the conversation, to be honest. You know, Maradona probably is the most outstanding football talent of all time, who has achieved some of the greatest feats of all time. But in terms of longevity of a career, in terms of someone that delivered year in, year out, Maradona's not close to Messi um, in terms of sustained brilliance. In fact, Alfredo Di Stefano and Johan Cruyff and Pele have a better shout, to be honest, to be in that conversation, and Cristiano Ronaldo to an extent, who didn't build a team around him. Um, so I think in the fullness of time, history will be much kinder to Messi, and he hasn't got to worry in the long term. No, I can see that as well. I think also on the Andre 2000 comparison, I think what, one thing you do tend to associate with those sort of really great figures is that perhaps they do actually also always leave you wanting a little bit more, and you're always wondering what that... Well, that could have been like, especially with Andre 2000, as you mentioned, they're not having released that solo album and people wondering, yeah. you know. Well, Gary Lineker said it best about Messi. He said, look, this is a man who is possibly the best scorer of all time, the best dribbler of all time, and the best passer of all time. I think those are absolutely fair assessments of Messi. And Lineker said it best. He's like, look, I played against Maradona. Gary Lineker literally played against Maradona. He knows, you know, I mean, that's a guy whose opinion at some level is not definitive, but it's pretty, you know, it's pretty substantial. It's a pretty heavyweight judgment. Um, and this isn't, you know, Lineker's not a bitter guy, like he lost to Maradona. He's not bitter about it. He's, he's a very fair, I think, pundit. And I think that carries a lot of weight. Absolutely. Um, just one final point then, just before we wrap sure. up. I just wanted to talk about just a couple of things I want to try and get in. But um, Brazil then today, I mean, it, not to focus on it too much, but um, they just seem to overpower Mexico in the end. And then we talked about Mexico being profligate. Um, Neymar then uh, having a big involvement in both goals, although I actually thought the first one was um, heavily sort of created by Willian's William, yes. ridiculous um, sort of change of pace and acceleration. 
Um, mm. what, what do you make of this Brazil side then? Because I mean, it's an interesting figure, uh, figurehead at the sort of in the coach's chair to the Tite. Um, the side is not the most flowing, I think, but um, has lots so of like tools. So like Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle. You know yeah. that bit where he go, he basically sits on the he sits on the ropes for eight rounds against George Foreman, <laughs> yeah. and he just gets hammered in the ribs, right? He gets hammered in the kidneys for like eight rounds. That's what Mexico did. They absorbed that blow for most of the game, and then they hit Mexico with two punches, and Mexico were done. Does that make sense? Like they completely yeah. sucker punched them, and that's what they did to Serbia as well. Like this Brazil team. I compare them to kind of proto Atletico Madrid. They haven't got quite the same match control, but it's still pretty good. They've got this, actually, they've even got Felipe Luis at left back. There's an analogy there as well. You know, they've got this kind of Atletico Madrid solidity. They will sit, they've got midfielders who don't necessarily control possession, but they will run from deep. So they've got Casemiro who screens the defense, Paulino who's got incredible movement in the final third and in the middle third, to be honest. Coutinho, who pops up and is actually very difficult to pick up because this midfield is so amorphous. It's like tackling smoke. It's a midfield three, but it's almost like a midfield zero because actually at some points there's no one in midfield at all, if that makes sense. It's like a bag of marbles. You can't actually track anyone. And they pop up, they, they, they knock the ball wide. So it's this kind of 4-3-3 on paper, but it's really a 4-4-2 in a sense with the two in the middle, um, Casimir and Paulina to extend loosely and the other, the other four floating. And then they just hit you out wide. Both calls came from the inside left channel. Yeah. And then it's it. You're done. It's good night. It's interesting with Brazil because I, th- I think one of my big questions around them was I, I wondered about their mentality. And I think it, right. it, it, having been on the end of, I mean, not all the players are there who've, who've, who've suffered that. I think one player who I always look back on is somebody who's been for both, both for club and country, uh, on the end of some horrific results really is, uh, Thiago Silva. I mean, he's still out there. Uh, yes. And you, you do wonder. Just how strong the resilience is. I mean, does does it strike you as a side that would be resilient enough, say, for example, to to get into the trenches with a, a side the likes of Uruguay, for example? Absolutely, this is different because Thiago Silva, the challenge he had is that he was not a senior partner in defence. Yeah, Thiago Silva is an elevated player because he's technically extraordinary, but he hasn't got. He's not like a brutal mentality, but they've got Miranda alongside him, and that's vital. Miranda has that kind of you know, an Atletico player, that kind of like um, that old head. And that allows Thiago to kind of be the ball player, you know, the kind of um, the grace alongside the grit, which is fantastic. You've got Willian, who's extraordinary. Even when Willian's not playing that well attacking in an attacking sense, he's a tremendous defender. So the right flank is always shored up. I think it's wonderful. I just think this team has got just the right amount, just the right mix of both business and pleasure. And, they're going to be extremely dangerous, whoever they play, uh, in, the, in the closing stages. Yeah, I think just from a biased Liverpool perspective, the only complaint I have is wanting, wanting, but also not wanting to see more of Bobby Firmino because I'm, I'm aware of the season he's just had. So listen, as a Manchester United fan, I'm extremely. I'd be very happy for that man to play every minute of this tournament. Get very tired. <laughs> because, frankly, let me just say this to all you Liverpool fans: the, th- the thought of facing, <laughs> the thought of facing Liverpool, a powered-up Liverpool next season. Frankly, is is making me lose a little bit of sleep at the moment. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that at all. So yeah, you got you got my word on that. You, you'll definitely win some friends by that. Yeah, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not looking forward to it at all. I'm already very very excited just for the celebration possibilities between uh, Kater, Bobby, and um, and Mane as well. But um, yeah, and you got Fabinho as well. My goodness, terrifying. Anyway, anyway, just what just a. As, as a final point, I, I guess we should round that with England. Um, and yeah. lots have been made of sort of this England squad. Um, 
uh, people have been at pains to sort of emphasize just how humble they are. Um, you know, a mixture of players who are you know, nice, but perhaps, perhaps no egos in there. Of course, that's very different to some of the coverage pre-tournament and plenty of it focusing yeah. on Sterling uh, in, in, in very negative ways. Um, but it, in terms of sort of how the team has been covered since the tournament started, um, it has seemed to contrast quite greatly with sort of previous campaigns. Uh, have you noticed that obvious change there? And you yeah, they just seem a, bit, they seem a bit nicer. You know what it is? I think the country's having a tough time. And I just think that it's the optimism people need. It's a bit like the Olympics 2012, you know, just the back end of austerity and people needed a lift. And there was a sense, I think even the tabloids, you know what, and they're very manipulative, the tabloids, but they were like, you know what, it, the people, that our readers don't want us to tear them down. You know, when England teams have been torn down in the past, if we look at them economically, like, you know, these, these teams that got torn down in the 80s, the mid-90s, the country was surging back then to an extent. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. the economies were booming. I Maybe mean, that's a bit going a bit far, but if you look at the England teams that have been torn down previously, a lot of the time, you know, at least during the tournament, things have been going pretty well in the UK. And I think there's just the sense of, actually, let's rally behind people because the country is behind them and we don't want to be out of step with the country. And frankly, they're a nice bunch, you know, Gareth Southgate, homegrown manager, um, Rashford, Lingard, Sterling, Kane. These are nice, these are nice guys. The one thing I would say about England is that, you know, and this is maybe going to win me some more points. I really, really, really am sad to see Oxley Chamberlain out of this squad with his injury yeah. because he is the missing. I love Loftus Cheek. I think he's great, but I think that Loftus Cheek would be an understudy to Oxlade in the form he was in against Man City. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And he is the key because Oxlade's movement off the ball into the final third is something that very few footballers have in this tournament and that would be devastating in this context i think no it's definitely been bittersweet for me to watch it yeah because i think it it, it is a side where you can see oh it, it, it's requiring that sort of dynamic midfield yes, capable yes. Of those the movement bursts. from left to right yeah. the movement to cut across uh, right to left left to right oxley can do any of that he can finish he can initiate the counter i mean he's, he can score from distance he's devastating and he is just the player in a three five two who'd be extraordinary Anyway, that's my that's my particular view. Absolutely. Anyway, Musa, thanks so much for helping us come on here and, and just sort of obviously talking over the game so far, sort of the, the tournament as a whole. Just before you do go, I just wanted to ask you just um, obviously if, if you have had, had anything to plug. I know you're doing a sort of variety of yeah, work around the world. Yeah, to be honest, any, if, if any, if anything I'd love to plug in particular, I'm writing a column for the New York Times. It's called Offsides. Uh, my Twitter handle is OKWONGA. And the, you can, you can find the link on my, um, I think it's a pinned tweet on my Twitter account. And it's basically a twice weekly newsletter about the World Cup and political issues. And hopefully you'll enjoy, um, my comments on football anyway. I'm not a rabid tribalist when it comes to football. I just love the good stuff. Yeah. So hopefully, um, anyone listening, uh, can check out my work. And there's also a poem I write about Mohamed Salah, I must mention before I go, called The Ode to Mo, which some of you might have seen up in Liverpool. Um, so yeah, check that out if you get a chance. It's quite near the, um, station, I think. I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, it's up there somewhere. Absolutely, I definitely recommend you checking out all of that stuff. Moose is a, uh, somebody who speaks very eloquently on football, so definitely worth following, even as a Manchester United fan. I'm sure plenty of people just, just want me to get that in towards the end, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Musa, thanks so much for coming on and helping us talk about the World Cup. I'm sure we'll try and get you back on before the end of this, uh, what's been a thrilling tournament. My absolute pleasure, and I hope you love the rest of it. Thank you so much. Thanks much, Cheers, And that wraps up another World Cup podcast here on Anfield Index. I'd like to thank you very, very much for listening, as always. And we'll be back with more World Cup podcasts as the knockout rounds progress. 
and uh, you know, more and more of this drama um, unfolds uh, before us. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're all going to be enjoying Japan versus Belgium tonight, and uh, uh, myself, Guy, and Gangs will all be back to cover more World Cup games. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the likes of Musa, Jonathan Johnson, uh, and, and all other guests back on as well. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and uh, uh, keep your eyes peeled for more World Cup podcasts here on Anfield Index. Network.